The inventor of the sewing machine was a man by the name of Elias Howe. And Howe was helped by a dream. You see, a typical sewing needle is threaded opposite its point, And the thread is pulled through the garment. This wasn't going to work in Howe's machine. He couldn't figure out where to position the needle. Elias was running out of money and running out of ideas. But then one night he had a dream. A king had ordered his execution for failing to invent a sewing machine. Soldiers were escorting him to the gallows when he noticed the strange spears they were holding. These spears were pierced near the point. And instantly, Hal knew how. He woke up. He raced to the workshop. And by morning, he had the first sewing machine up and running. Ladies, next time you sit down to a sewing machine, remember that the seams you're sewing were made possible by the dream of Elias Howe. Well, the prophet Zechariah also had a dream. And it was his dreams that helped the Jews rebuild their nation and reconstruct their temple. Here's the background. Around 70 after, excuse me, I was giving Mark a signal and I lost my concentration. Mark, you need to turn this up just a little bit. Here is the background. After 70 years in Babylon, 50,000 Jews, along with Governor Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua and the prophet Haggai, returned to the land of Judah to resurrect this nation Israel. And understand the challenge they were up against. The Babylonians had ravished the land. They had demolished the temple. The mission was to stitch up a war-torn land. The job was enormous. Their supplies were meager. The work was difficult. And to make matters worse, every day the workers were haunted by the memory of Jerusalem's former glory. It was sort of a cloud that hung over the present task. Nothing they would build could compare to the colossal, elaborate temple that had stood before. Morale was low. I mean, why even try? Well, construction on the temple started as soon as the first Jews returned in 535 B.C. But all that got accomplished was the laying of the foundation. Work ceased for 15 years. Everyone went off to build their own houses. And remember from last week, it was the prophet Haggai who got them back on task. He challenged them. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? I mean, how could they justify building their own houses before building God a house? Well, work restarted in 520 B.C. and help came in the form of a dream. It was in the evening hours of February the 15th, 519 B.C. A night Zechariah would never forget. In one night, God gave the prophet a sequence of eight dreams. One stunning vision after another kept him awake. God worked on Zechariah like a loaded pizza from Mellow Mushroom. 
I mean, all through the night, man, this brother's mind was dancing with wild, bizarre, off-the-chain images. Extra-strength NyQuil couldn't keep him asleep. Reminds me of the man who, who dreamed of eating a huge plate of delicious spaghetti. When he woke up, he discovered that his pajama string was missing. Well, likewise, what Zachariah saw was not just a dream. It was a series of real-life messages that God would fulfill over the course of Jewish history. Yes, Israel had been torn, but God shows Zechariah how he'll stitch up the nation's seams through these eight different dreams. Some of the visions offered immediate encouragement to Zerubbabel and the builders. Others looked to the future. God wanted the builders to know that their work was not in vain, that they were setting the stage for a glory yet future. While workers built Zerubbabel's temple, God was at work between Zechariah's two temples. While workers saw, Zechariah sees, and both gifts are needed in a mission for God, Actionaries and visionaries. Zechariah's dreams got the nation's attention off their past and refocused them on the future. Here's what we'll do today. We're going to move real quickly. You're going to have to hold on to your hat. We're going to go real quickly through Zechariah's eight dreams. And then we're going to sum up his prophecies concerning the future. Fourteen chapters now. But we're going to conclude this morning by talking about our own personal dreams and their importance in our lives. Well, in dream one, Zacharias sees four horses. A man, God's messenger, is riding on the red horse, and he's standing among the myrtle trees. Now, the myrtle tree represented Israel. It's a small evergreen, more a shrub, really, than a tree. It never grows more than eight feet tall. It has dark green leaves, and when its petals are crushed, it gives off a fragrance. You know, Israel is like an evergreen tree, tough to kill it. In fact, it never dies, and it's small in comparison with other nations. The crushing of the petals reminds us of Israel's tendency to grow sweeter through suffering and persecution. It tends to be the case with all God's people. God's messenger reports that the nations are at ease, yet they won't be forever. God is zealous for Jerusalem. He's angry with the nations that persecute Israel. God comforts Israel, but he judges the Gentiles. Zechariah chapter 1 verse 16, our first passage this morning, predicts Jerusalem's glorious future. We're told, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it. What an encouragement to hear that. For Zerubbabel and the temple crew to hear that God was with them. That God had returned with them to Jerusalem. In verse 17 he predicts, My cities shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. These returnees were laying the groundwork for future expansion. What they're doing was important. Now at the end of chapter 1, Zechariah sees dream 2. Four horns appear. These are the nations that have scattered Israel, probably the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and the Greeks, then the Romans. 
He then sees four craftsmen or demolition experts who dismantle these nations. The point here is simple. Pick on God's kids and God is going to pick on you. Chapter 2 records dream 3. A man with a tape measure goes out to measure the dimensions of Jerusalem. If you've ever sold a house, you know that before the sale goes through, it has to be resurveyed. That's what's happening here. Jerusalem's boundaries are being measured, for the city has changed ownership. It now belongs to the Jews. You know, it would be 75 years or so before Nehemiah would return to rebuild Jerusalem's walls. And yet in the meantime, God promises in verse 5 of chapter 2 to be a ring of fire around the city. He's going to protect Jerusalem. He's going to be its glory. In fact, God says in verse 8, I love this. He says, he who harms Israel touches the apple of my eye. Did you know that's true of all God's kids? If you know Jesus this morning, you are the apple of God's eye. The subject of dream four is the high priest Joshua. And old Josh, man, he isn't exactly dressed for success. Notice chapter three, verse three, it says he's wearing filthy garments. The Hebrew term translated filthy actually means excrement stained or dung splattered. Imagine a bad case of diarrhea. That's his robe, man. The angel of the Lord is on one side of Joshua. Satan is on the other side of Joshua. And the devil's up to his old tricks. The accuser of the brethren tries to heap guilt on a child of God who's helping to build the temple. My, this is what he's up to today. Satan doesn't want to see a strong church in this community. And so what is he doing? He's trying to condemn and discourage builders like you and like me. Oh, how can you be serving God with the sins you've racked up? It it reminds me of Martin Luther's vision. Martin was at his desk one day when Satan appeared to him to remind him of all the evil he had done. Finally, Luther had had enough of old Lucifer. He shouted at him. He said, it's all true, Satan. And many more sins I have committed which are known to God only. But right at the bottom of your list, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Luther then grabbed the inkwell off his desk and he threw it at Satan. It was the turning point in Luther's life. From that moment on, he became free from the devil's debilitating condemnation. Of course, the inkwell missed the devil and it hit the wall. And today, 500 years later, you can visit Luther's study in the Wartburg Castle in Germany and you can see the famous ink spot. And just as Luther did, I hope that today, before you leave, you'll put your foot down. You'll throw an inkwell at him if necessary. You'll take a stand today on the blood of Jesus Christ and you'll stop allowing the devil to bury your good intentions under a mountain of guilt. Well, in chapter 3, Satan opposes Joshua, the high priest. And that's when the Lord steps in to defend him. Verse 2, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, he says. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And what a fitting description for all of us. 
You know, none of us deserve God's mercy and grace. We are all brands plucked from hellfire. No one is good enough for God. Hey, you take the witness stand to try to prove that you're worthy of God's favor and Satan is going to tear you up on cross-examination. By the way, Satan's an alligator of a litigator. He can make the purest saint look like a sex offender. Just attempt to defend yourself and he'll drag up every evil thought and every dirty deed you've done. Thankfully here, Joshua doesn't try to defend himself. Verse 5 is the key to his defense. We're told the angel of the Lord stood by. The Lord was Joshua's attorney. You know, often in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. I believe that's the case here. Here, Joshua recruits the divine Perry Mason. You remember old Perry? Jesus is just like Perry, never took a case he didn't win. Here, Jesus rebukes the devil. Then he strips off Joshua's filthy threads, clothes him in rich robes in a clean turban. In chapter 6, he even puts a crown on Joshua's head. And this is what he does for everyone who follows him. On the cross, Jesus canceled out our sin. If we come to him, he forgives us and he accepts us. And he closes in his goodness. And he makes us members of his royal family. All the while, he rebukes Satan for trying to remind us of what we used to be. Wow, Jesus does all this and more. And he does it for you. 1 John 2 verse 1 sounds a lot like Zechariah chapter 3. There we're told if anyone sins, we have an advocate or an attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Well, in dream 5, Zechariah sees an automated menorah. A Jewish menorah is a seven-branch lampstand that burns with olive oil. A long process, lots and lots of work, went into lighting the temple menorah. Olives had to be grown and then harvested. The olives then had to be crushed and the oil extracted. The menorah was then filled and tended by the priest. But none of this applies to to the menorah that Zacharias sees. He sees piping that runs directly from the olive trees into a bowl. And then it runs on to the lamps. No harvest is required here. No crushing of the olives. No priest is even involved. This lamp is being supernaturally supplied. The oil is dripping into the bowls and it's flowing to the wicks without any human intervention whatsoever. And Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6 interprets this vision. It says, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. As God himself fueled the menorah without human help, the temple will be constructed by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, throughout the scripture, oil is a type of the Holy Spirit and how beautifully it illustrates the Spirit's work in our life. Think of all that oil does. It lubricates, it soothes, it heals, it lights, It warms, it refreshes, it invigorates, it fuels us, it polishes us, it shines us. All of which the Holy Spirit does in our lives. It's the Spirit who stokes our service. 
He lubricates the work so that it becomes easier and goes smoother. He refreshes us along the journey. He creates in us a shine. Hey, Zerubbabel was building a temple, which was no easy task. In fact, at times his job seemed as hard as climbing a mountain. Yet verse 7 asks, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Zerubbabel is going to cut down this mountain and build this temple, but it won't be by his grit or his genius That'll get the job done. It's all about God's grace. And guys, the same is true with New Testament temple building. It too is all about grace. Any true work of God is always accomplished by the Spirit of God. We don't trust in our grit or our genius, our bronze or our brain. We trust in the work of God's grace and the power of God's Spirit. Hey, it's not more elbow grease that we need today. We need the supernatural oil of the Holy Spirit. Pour out, Lord, your Spirit on us all. That should be our prayer. Well, the angel says to Zechariah in chapter 4, verse 10, he says, For who has despised the day of small things? Now, we learned in Haggai that it was the geezers, the old guys, who remembered Solomon's temple and who mocked the new version. You see, Zerubbabel's temple was smaller and less ornate. It was a hut compared to Solomon's glorious temple. But Zechariah tells them not to despise the days of small things. For God uses the small as well as the large. Sometimes God's greatest work is subtle and simple and small in scale and silent. J. Vernon McGee spoke in hundreds of churches across the country, and he once wrote, We Americans are impressed with the big and brassy. We like our Christian work to be a success story. We measure success by the size of the building and crowds that come. Well, I am becoming more and more convinced that the Lord is working in quiet ways and in quiet places today. Don't get discouraged when the Bible study you start or the prayer group you get going only has a few people. Who knows the work that God is doing in those few and the ultimate work that will prevail? The temple God makes is made up of lots of small things. (laughs) There's an inmate, Robert Shepard, who escaped from a jail in Charleston, South Carolina, and I loved how he did it. He used dental floss. That's right. The rope that he used to climb over the wall of the prison was made by braiding together 48 strands of mint-flavored dental floss. You know, our lives might be a single strand, but God can twist together relationships and circumstances. He can put it all together, weave it together to do a great and mighty work through our lives. Don't despise the day of small things. Well, in dream six, Zechariah sees a flying scroll, and it's quite large, 30 feet by 15 feet. Think of the airplanes that fly down the beach, pulling the advertising banners behind them. That's what Zechariah sees. He sees this banner announcing judgment, and it reads, the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Now, dream seven is Zechariah's version of the old TV show, 
I Dream of Jeannie. Anybody remember that show? Okay. But rather than a genie in a bottle, he sees a woman in a bushel basket. And this girl isn't a pretty little genie in a skimpy costume. Her name is Wickedness. You could say this gal's a real basket case. You could say that. I mean, the angel takes this wicked witch, stuffs her in a basket, plops a lead lid on the top, and transports her back to Shinar, all the way back to Babylon. Apparently, the Jews who had returned from, to Jerusalem, they had brought with them a few of the evils they'd picked up back in Babylon. Their evil here gets returned to cinder. And here's a great lesson for you and me. You can't begin a new life in Christ. You can't start a new work for God. You can't really get a fresh new start if you're holding on to the dirty thoughts and the corrupt attitudes and the sinful habits of your past. No, no, no. If you want to begin a new work for God, if you want to begin a new start for God, you've got to take all of that past stuff, all of that garbage from your past, and you've got to stuff it in a basket and plop a lid on top and send it as far, far away as you can. Then you can start afresh and do something great for God. Well, chapter 6 records the eighth and the final dream. Zechariah sees two bronze mountains and four chariots riding between the mountains. I'm telling you, he saw some bizarre things that night. These chariots, presumably war chariots, are pulled by horses. Red horses, black horses, white horses, and dappled or pale horses. You know, it's interesting, 600 years later on the island of Patmos, the Apostle John sees these same horses, the four horses of the apocalypse. And he writes about them in Revelation chapter 6. In fact, the book of Zechariah gets quoted or referenced 31 times in the book of Revelation. Now from chapter 7 on, God gives Zechariah a glimpse of Israel's future. It's important they build the temple because that's the first step to a glorious future. In chapter 8, we learn that God is a zealous God. And this is something you've got to realize this morning. It's important that you know that our God is a zealous God. Here's what this means. God is not some old guy that you try to keep calm and that you're afraid about him getting excited because if he does, he might have a stroke or have a heart attack and so you sort of keep him calm and sedated. That's not God. God's heart still races on a regular basis. God's blood pressure rises often. God is intense and he's passionate and he's excitable and he's emotional. God is engaged. And interested in everything that happens. In verse 2 he says, I am zealous for Zion. God gets zealous for his people. He cares. He's passionate. And he gets zealous for the Jewish people. And their capital, Jerusalem. What an encouragement this was to the Jews who had returned to Zerubbabel. 
At the moment, their city was in ruins. But they knew God was zealous for Jerusalem. And if you know God's for you, if you know God's zealous for you, hey, you can work through anything. You can overcome any obstacle. Here in this chapter, God promises to restore joy and safety and people and blessing to the city streets of Jerusalem. Notice chapter 8, verse 5. I love this verse. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing. And whenever we visit the Jewish quarter in the old city... I always take the groups and I stop by one of the playgrounds there in the Jewish quarter. And then I pull out my Bible and I read this verse. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing. It's a prophecy that is being fulfilled even in our day. You know, these prophecies and others like them are why no Bible-believing Jew will ever give Jerusalem back to the Muslims. For God is zealous toward Zion. And let me add, he's zealous for our community too. God doesn't just live in Jerusalem. He lives in our streets and in our schools and in our workplaces. Well, chapter 9 records judgments against Damascus and the Philistines. And in the midst of these judgments, Jesus becomes the focus over and over again. It seems Zechariah's visions are, are messianic and they're millennial. They speak of Jesus, both his first coming and his second coming. Here's a good example. Notice verses 9 and 10 of chapter 9. You'll remember this verse. It was quoted by Matthew. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Remember, oriental kings, they rode horses into battle. But among their people, they were more comfortable on the back of a burrow. See, a donkey made them more accessible, made them more in touch with their people. It was a symbol of the king's humility and his concern. And when Jesus made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, the Sunday before his crucifixion, the day he was hailed as king of the Jews, you remember what he came on, what he was riding? He was riding on a donkey. Jesus was fulfilling this scripture in Zechariah. And he was showing us that he came not to be served, but to serve. He came in humility. Well, verse 9 speaks of Jesus' first coming. And, and right next to it, verse 10, jumps to his second coming. It tells us that Jesus will speak peace. And that he will rule from sea to sea. He'll, cover, he'll, he'll rule over the entire earth. In chapter 10, verse 3, we're flying here. Zechariah says that the Lord will visit the house of Judah. He's speaking here of the Messiah, the first coming of Jesus. And it's interesting that he describes Jesus in four ways. I want you to take note. Jesus is the cornerstone. In other words, he's the strongest part of the house. He's the strength for every situation. Jesus is the tent peg. He's where you hang your hat. He's the solution to every problem. He is the battle bow. He is the victory over every enemy. And he is every ruler together. He is unity for every division. Jesus is all of that and more. Well, in chapter 11, Zechariah acts out a parable. 
He takes two shepherd staffs, staffs, and he names them beauty and bonds. We have two staffs here at the church. They're named Jessica and Anna. And I might add, they're real beauties too. But Zechariah takes the rod called beauty and he breaks it in two. He's predicting that God will break the covenant that he's made with his people. Destruction will come. As the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem, so will the Romans. And in chapter 11, we have mentioned the event that causes God to break beauty and bonds. The Jews will reject their Messiah and they will follow a false Christ. Now, Zechariah sees this. Destruction is on the horizon. He knows he's going to be without a job pretty soon. And he's entitled to a final paycheck. And so he asks for it in verse 12. And guess what they pay him? 30 pieces of silver. Exodus 21 labels that the price of a slave. It just shows you how much the people valued a faithful shepherd, a faithful pastor. And listen to God's sarcasm in response. Verse 13 of chapter 11. He says, throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. 30 pieces of silver was the price Judas Iscariot received for betraying Jesus. Jesus, the most important life in history, was betrayed for the price of a slave. Afterward, Judas felt so guilty, he tried to return the money. But you remember when they refused, he took it and he threw it down in the temple. Later, that money was used to buy a potter's field. And it was all a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Now, how ironic. The Jews rejected the true Christ, but in the last days, they will embrace a false Christ. And Zechariah 11 describes both events. Verse 17 calls the infamous Antichrist the worthless shepherd. We're told his arm will be withered. He'll be blind in his right eye. Verse 12, chapter 12 opens with an amazing prophecy about Jerusalem. Notice verse 3. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. Isn't it interesting how such a city as Jerusalem dominates the world's headlines? You know, you know I'm amazed that anyone would even care about Jerusalem. It has no strategic value, no natural resources, no inherent riches. It's far from the nearest body of water. And yet Jerusalem is the most hotly contested piece of real estate on this planet. Every nation has a position on Jerusalem. It is indeed a heavy stone for all peoples, as Zechariah puts it. And God will gather the nations of the earth against Jerusalem. It's a divine ambush. Notice verse 9. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be the flashpoint. 
When Jerusalem is under siege, God will judge the nations and He will finally save the Jews. Everyone who goes to Israel asks me, hey, there's so much history here, so much evidence of Jesus and His work. Why don't the Jews believe? And it's a quandary, it's a mystery, but the day is coming when the Jews will believe. Zechariah saw it. Chapter 11 is the lowest point in Jewish history. The Jews reject their Messiah for 30 pieces of silver. But chapter 12 is the high point. For here the Jews are finally saved. Zechariah 12 verse 10 quotes God. I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. One day the Jews are going to admit their mistake. Once betrayed by the false Christ, once surrounded by the nations of the world, they'll realize that they've missed the true Christ. And when Jesus appears at his second coming, they'll be ready. We're told they will look on him whom they pierced. All the Jews alive at the time will repent and believe, and in the end, all Israel will be saved. While the end of chapter 13 has more amazing prophecies concerning Jesus, in verse 6, Jesus says, I was wounded in the house of my friends. How true that was. Verse 7 refers to Jesus as God's man and God's shepherd. We're also told what happened the night Jesus was arrested. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That night, all his disciples either forsook him or denied him. For three days, the disciples were scattered sheep. Chapter 14 describes the battle of Jerusalem. Here's the climax, the final battle before Jesus returns. Verse 2 sets the stage. All nations will gather against Jerusalem. And they'll deal the city a heavy blow. They'll have the upper hand until... The Lord comes to the rescue, verse 3. The Lord will go and fight against those nations. And there'll be no match for Jesus. For at his second coming, Jesus is no longer riding a donkey. He's on a white war horse. He comes with a drawn sword and a robe splattered with the blood of his enemies. Jesus came to earth the first time to save souls and to heal broken hearts. He's going to come the second time to kick butt and break some kneecaps. Verse 4 adds, In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. In the same spot Jesus ascended to heaven, he's going to return to the earth in the exact same spot on top of the Mount of Olives. It's interesting, 45 years ago, when Pan Am constructed a hotel there on the Mount of Olives, their seismic studies detected a fault down the center of the mountain. They ended up actually building further south, away from the fault line. They deemed that the hill is unstable. I'll tell you, it is unstable. And it's waiting on the pressure of one foot. Jesus' big toe, when it hits that mountain, is going to cause it to split in two, and the whole topography of Jerusalem will be altered. Verses 8 and 9 tell us that a river will flow 
from Jerusalem to the Mediterranean and from Jerusalem southward to the Dead Sea, thus connecting the two bodies of water. This will bring life to the Dead Sea and it will turn Jerusalem into a port. Verse 9 declares, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. How we long for that day. Zechariah 14 verse 12 is a provocative verse. When God strikes down the armies that fight against Jerusalem, here's what happens. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets. And their tongues shall dissolve in their mouths. Wow, the disintegration of the soft body tissues is a symptom of radiation poisoning. Sounds like a nuclear blast. And the accompanying fallout. Is it possible nuclear weapons come into play in the battle over Jerusalem? Wow. What an interesting idea interjected here by a man writing 2,500 years ago. Well, the end of the book describes life when Jesus establishes his kingdom on the earth. He'll rule the world from the temple in Jerusalem. His throne in the temple will become the center of the universe. And I've stood right there in that spot. Right there will be his throne. That'll be the center of the temple. And once a year, everyone will pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship Jesus. When they arrive, they'll see the motto. It's engraved everywhere. All over the temple, in the pots, and in the bowls. And it reads, Holiness to the Lord. That's the motto of God's kingdom. Holiness to the Lord. Now, here's where it gets real personal for you and me. What's your motto? Are you trying to live a life that's holy to God? Are you trying to live a life set apart and dedicated to Jesus? This is why our dreams are important. You say no to this world. You stay committed to Jesus. You press on in your faith because of God's great promises. It's the dreams that God gives us that promotes holiness in our lives. You see, building a temple, serving the Lord can be hard sledding at times. Zerubbabel and his crew, don't you know they were easily discouraged And we too can get so overwhelmed in the details that we lose sight of the overarching plan. You see, the stress of the moment can blind us to the significance of the task. I'll never forget Thomas Watson. I read about this. He took over a small company that made meat slicers and time clocks and punch card machines. Little stuff. But Watson had a dream of manufacturing machines that could handle and store information for business. He had a vision, and he named his company accordingly, International Business Machines, or IBM. Years later, Watson was asked, when did he first see his company growing so large? And I love what Thomas Watson said. Right at the beginning Right at the beginning. From the outset of this work, God wanted the Jews who had returned to Jerusalem to know that they were setting the stage for a glorious future. Their rebuilding and their pioneering spirit were necessary first steps in his plan. And it was Zechariah's dreams for the future that kept them right on course 
that kept them committed in the moment. God was and is zealous toward Israel. We can overcome anything. God is zealous toward us. He has plans for our future. And this, my friend, is what should excite you today. For God is zealous for you. He has dreams that he wants to fulfill in your life. And the fact that God is zealous for you should keep you motivated and keep you moving and keep you aspiring to a holy life. Because God cares about you. He has plans for you. No matter how small your situation, no matter how neglected you might feel, no matter how filthy you might sometimes feel, God still has plans for you. In Christ, you are as indestructible as a myrtle tree. God is a ring of fire all around you, protecting you, keeping you safe. Jesus takes away your filth. He clothes you with righteous robes and with a clean turban. His work gets done not through our grit or our genius, but through His grace. It's by His Spirit, says the Lord. And some of His greatest works are small in scale. Don't despise the day of small things. And whatever you do, don't hold on to your past and to the garbage of your past. Return them to cinder and start afresh through Jesus Christ. Woodrow Wilson put it this way. We grow great by dreams. Some of us let these great dreams die, but others nurse them through bad days until they bring us into sunshine. Hold on to the dreams that God gives you, for they will aspire you to live a holy life. Dreams for ministry, or for relationships, or for business, or for family. Some people work and they never dream. And so their work is aimless. Some people dream but they never work. They get fired. <laughs> hey, be like Zechariah. Let your dreams cause you to work for God and cause you to serve the Lord faithfully and cause you to aspire to a holy life. Who knows the great things God might work through you. Don't despise the day of small things.